VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today. Let's go. We're looking forward to speaking with you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, well, absolutely extraordinary victory for the Newfoundland Growls last night in Reading, Pennsylvania. Overcome a 3-1 series deficit, beat uh, Reading last night 4-2 to take it in seven. Only the eighth time in ECHL history that a team has overcome a 3-1 deficit. Only three teams ever in ECHL history have won game six and seven on the road to overcome a 3-1 deficit. So bravo to the Growlers. That's really great stuff. They open up the next series this Friday night at Mary Brown Center, taking on the Florida Everglades. So the game is Friday night, and then there's a Sunday game as well to kick off the next series. Congratulations to the players and the staff and the parents and supporters of the Queen Elizabeth Pioneers High School Hockey team. Won the Annie Parsons at Fred Squire Shields last night in what was a barn burner of a game apparently. So congratulations to all hands. Well I'm sure you've heard of the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Queensland, Australia. It was 16 years ago that the U.S. Navy created the Great Carrier Reef. So the Navy had this long-used 25 years of service for the USS Oriskany. It saw uh, duty in Vietnam and in Korea. When it was came time to be decommissioned, there was extraordinary costs associated with it, so they sunk it. They sunk it in a place called Tokyo Bay. The Times of London says it's one of the 10 finest wreck diving sites in the world. The Gulf of Mexico, anyway, the Great Carrier Reef, that's 2006. And it was today in history that the Watergate hearings began in front of the U.S. Senate in 1973. Gavel to gavel coverage held by PBS, and of course the entire country and many parts of the world were absolutely raptured with the Watergate coverage. So, we know the story, and unfortunately, Watergate has left us with the suffix of Watergate, or gate, being attached to every political scandal. All the time, non-stop. So the Watergate 7. So that's the five bungling bandits who were broke into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in the Watergate complex. And then two of their handlers to make up the seven, E. Howard Hunt and, of course, G. Gordon Liddy, a strange bird to say the very least. All these big names associated with, of course, it was the undoing of Richard Milhouse Nixon's presidency. So you add in the, the John Mitchells and the Haldemans and the Ehrlichmans and all the way down the line, Watergate remains still the most notorious political scandal, certainly in this part of the world. So the hearings began today in 1973. A bunch of them went to prison, as I know you are aware. And it was today in history, the first Kentucky Derby was run at Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, in 1875. The winning horse was Aristides. The young fella aboard Aristides was a 19-year-old jockey that never won again, Oliver Lewis. American horse racing has taken quite a knock, quite a knock in the last number of years. This past year, of course, was an 80-1 winner, Rich Stride, I think was the horse's name, the second longest shot to ever win the Derby. And the two winners prior to that, both disqualified for doping. We didn't see some of those big trainers around the paddock this year. Their names are kind of mud now. One of those two horses actually dropped dead a few weeks later on track with the heart condition. So horse racing, not what it once was. And of course, known far and wide as the sport of kings. And today, the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, and the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, 
are in town. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of folks out there rolling your eyes. You think the monarchy is completely irrelevant. Well, I'm happy to take your opinion or any conversation on it and the relevance in the future and what happens to the changes afoot when Prince Charles takes the throne as the next king of England. But here they come. So Charles has actually visited Canada 19 times. Well, when he arrives today, it'd be the 19th time. And the, both Camilla and Charles have been here in the past. I think it was 2009 they were here. So, I, look, I get it. There's a lot of concern about the money, and people may have zero time for the monarchy, but not everyone's in the exact same boat. And just for the purpose of information, for those of you out there who would like to see the prince and the duchess today, you can indeed do it on the grounds of Government House, so it's open to the public. Uh, you're asked to be there no later than 2 p.m., on-site drop-off is available on Military Road until 2 p.m. No on-site parking. You can indeed bring a portable chair. So if you'd like to catch a glimpse of the royals, that's your opportunity today. There will be a keen focus on indigenous reconciliation, long overdue. So if you want to talk about the royals from any angle, the visit today, or anything else associated with the monarchy, we can do exactly that, right? Why not? It's, uh, for some folks, they're really quite interested. And, you know, as much as we hear a lot of negativity surrounding the royals, there's lots of royal watchers and people who are very interested in the royals here in the province, but I know many of you will not be. Here's one of the best parts of it. Is the prince today will arrive at Government House and meet his woolly doppelganger. So apparently this Manitoba artist named Rosemary Pelliquin, she spends hundreds of hours on each of the busts, so she knits the busts of various people, including the prince, <laughs> and he will be presented that. And also a bust of Queen Elizabeth II will be presented to the patron today. So there will be uh, representatives for the Campaign for Wool in Canada on hand. And they say that even the, the prince's pulley doppelganger is not even the pièce de résistance. So, anyway, the royals, here they come. All right, what's this? Scribble. Oh, yeah. So, for almost a year, there has been no replacement for Suzanne Brake, the seniors' advocate. Now there is a new one in place, and, of course, these are really important advocacy jobs. Susan Walsh has been named or appointed. I guess it needs the approval of the cabinet to finalize the appointment of Susan Walsh in the role of the seniors' advocate, you know, to identify systemic issues facing seniors, to recommend changes on their behalf. You know, it's unlike other advocates where you have very specific cases that can be taken up, like the child and youth advocate. This one is the broad strokes of what's happening for with seniors across the province. So it's a critically important job. Suzanne Brake did terrific work in that color portfolio or in that position. And so here comes Susan Walsh. She has a long, impressive resume. And she's going to be taking on the reins as the seniors advocate. If you'd like to talk about that, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know this Susan Walsh. And if so, if it's the one I'm thinking of, she's a really impressive woman. And so we wish her good luck in this critically important role. And I don't want to make this the generalization, but inside the parishioners, the numbers of people who are still parishioners at the various churches of different faiths around the province, it seems to me the average age is getting up there. And we can tackle that as you see fit. I do have a half a dozen people who are still really worried and focused in on what becomes of their church. Now, for you listening who are not attendees and you are maybe not people of faith, okay. But there are many people are. So the most interesting one for me is, well, I guess they're all important to the folks who are parishioners, whether it be at Holy Rosary down in the Cove or anywhere else. But the Basilica of St. John the Baptist, it would be so bizarre if that no longer remained a place of worship. So three groups have come together to put a bid in. Uh, it's the Basilica Heritage Foundation, St. Bonaventure's College, and St. Bon's Forum. They'd like to purchase it and he have all of these buildings 
continue to be utilized as they are, a hockey rink, a school, and a place of worship. So that one is still quite quite something. And there's many people out there concerned with some of the unmarked graves in some of the cemeteries. Now, there's been a compromise between the lawyers representing both sides, and cemeteries won't be sold, but there are churches that have a significant number of people buried outside of the main confines of cemeteries and asking for some sounding to be done to identify where that might be and to not have it sold along with some of the other property. But if you want to tackle it, we can do it. And boy, I guess we got to go down this path. The price of gas, man. So the PUB last night, they've increased the price of gasoline by 10.9 cents. You know, the opposition party are going to try to keep the House of Assembly open until there's some measures taken by the Liberal government to give people some relief. Some corners people think, well, when we don't have any money, how are we going to possibly pull that off? But folks are struggling. Someone, uh, Stephen, in my email, makes an interesting observation. So, curiously, the price of gasoline, so it's around 2.25 for self-serve here on the Avalon Peninsula. Usually, there's a pretty big gap between the price here versus other parts of the province, or the island in particular, pardon me, but not so much now. So 2.25 on the Avalon, 2.27 in Central, 2.26 in Deer Lake and Cornerbrook, 2.31 on the Conagra Peninsula, 2.28 on the Northern Peninsula, so no longer that big gap. And so he, he asks, why? That's a good question. I don't know, like what changed? I mean, not to say that anyone's supporting a big increase, so you make your way to Gander, you're paying 10 cents more versus if you were living in St. John's or Mount Pearl. I just wonder how that has worked out the way it has. That's an interesting op observation by Stephen. Do you want to talk about it? I mean, the price of gas, I don't even know what to, where to go with that anymore. So the prices aren't up on everything. Price of crab, down. So the Association of Seafood Producers put forward a, an adjustment price to the price-setting panel, and they've taken the association's uh, suggestion of 6.15 per pound. The FAW had submitted a price of 6.55 per pound. All of that down from 7.60. Okay, what the market is can bear, I don't know what the market risks are, and the, uh, the analysis of market growth, okay. But from 7.60 to 6.15 is a big one. And for harvesters, if indeed you were unable to go out and complete your quota, execute your quota because of trip limits or what have you, and the approach at some point into the malt, into the soft shell, so for harvesters who were willing and wanting to go out and get that crab and were going to get 7.60 and now we'll get 6.15, I'm sure there's plenty of harvesters who know much more about this, this issue and the industry than I do, and we welcome your call today if you're so inclined. Okay. This one here, that'll get you going. So while we look around at our own rates of pay, our remuneration, and for most of us, our pay has not gone up. Nowhere near commensurate to the increase in cost of living. Nowhere close to a dealing with the inflation that is at 6.7%, a 31-year high. All the while, the federal government paid out over $171 million in bonuses to executives and public servants for 2019-2020. The biggest problem inside this, now I think it's a fair question to be asked about how and why we'd have performance bonuses or at-risk pay for public servants, but here's the analysis done. Da -da 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 -da. The federal government database shows that departments collectively achieved barely 48% of the 2,777 targets set in the sum of their individual annual self-reported department results. So that's pretty good participation bonuses. Only successful in achieving their targets less than half the time, and yet that's the money that goes out the door. 
Unbelievable. So the Treasury Board Secretariat says that uh, 89% of the public sector executives, or over 7,200, received these bonuses. 2.7% of public servants who rank below executive class, or some 7,800 individuals, also received a bonus. You know, bonuses are an important part of retaining people at the executive level. I understand that. But performances have to be met. Targets need to be achieved before we start considering bonuses, don't we? I mean, $171 million inside the whopping numbers of billions of dollars the federal government spends might be a drop in the bucket. But for those of us afraid to open the mailbox, for those of us who are really weary of having to go to the gas station, absolutely dreading having to call for more furnace oil, these types of things, they just don't jibe. So if you're not hitting your targets, how can these bonuses possibly be justified? That story, I'm sure, I'm sure will wrangle and rub your last nerve raw. Oh, on the price of crap, I did hear Brian Medor say that the Minister of Fisheries is going to make a decision on the proposal to reopen the Mary's, uh, St. Mary's plant within the next month. He doesn't have enough information on hand, he says, from the licensing board. So that decision will be coming. We don't even know what the recommendation was, a thumb up or thumb down on that front. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Let's get rolling here today. I've admitted freely that I'm limiting my intake of stories and images coming from Ukraine. I mean, it's just awful, of course, you know, the horrors of war. Now Finland and Sweden are both poised to apply to join NATO. All 30 member nations have to ratify their applications before the, uh, the alliance is expanded from 30 to 32. Both countries are quite clear in that they're bracing for Russian retaliation. And I guess based on just words coming directly from Russian President Putin's mouth, is that, you know, it's all, this is all about NATO. And so what does this mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see bombs lobbed into Stockholm or Helsinki. But they point to, and some people still roll their eyes at this, as if there's not Russian interference in our daily lives with disinformation and an attempt to divide and intimidate different countries, including this country and certainly the United States. So just imagine, you know, you're you're operating. These are very peaceful countries. I mean, let's be honest. So they see the merit in joining a defensive alliance like NATO. And at the exact same time, warning their own governments and their citizens that Russian retaliation will be inevitably in the offing. Anyway, if you want to talk about what we see in Ukraine, we can do that. Uh, Although I'll admit, I'm not following it as closely as most of you would be because it's just too much. All right, just sprinkle up a couple of different ones. We've had the discussion regarding the province's taxi industry and just the whopping big insurance they pay. 90% of cab drivers will find themselves in facility association. That's the last resort for insurance. So you're deemed to be uninsurable or extremely high risk as opposed to regardless of what industry you participate in, you should be judged on your driver's abstract. Just from, from my own money, from where I sit, that makes a bit more sense to me as opposed to lumping everyone in as high risk simply because you drive a cab. Apparently, driving instructors also now have nowhere else to turn but facility insurance. This one driving instructor who was interviewed, he has four vehicles, an increase of $2,000 per vehicle because they find himself in facility insurance. You would think that driving instructors might be operating some of the safest vehicles on the road. 
I would imagine. And yes, they have control if they're teaching a novice driver. They will still have plenty of control of the vehicle, the pedals on the other side, to try to make sure that nothing goes awry. I don't know how many accidents or collisions, pardon me, we see with driving instructor vehicles. In other provinces, there's actually a category. In Ontario, for instance, driver instructor insurance. And it is not in the same vein as facility. So just everywhere we turn, getting priced out of the game. Also, everybody in this province realizes that there's a lot of really aggressive, oblivious drivers behind the wheel. Are you more likely to be a reasonable or quote-unquote good driver if you get that type of formal training? I don't know. I know for me, it probably helped me, but... There's also a parental issue here where just imagine the rackets and the rows that parents may have with their children as they try to their teenagers when they try to teach them how to drive. Because it can be intense, right? And it can be very frustrating. So I don't know if you want to talk about that particular issue, but I wonder are you destined to be a more reasonable, responsible driver if you get that formal training from a driving instructor? And someone who's uh, consistently emailing regarding COVID-related matters, is really quite concerned about the dropping of the mandatory masks in schools come the 24th of May. I'll put it out there because I'm sure some of you are thinking and talking about that. And anything education, you know me, I'm into it. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And when we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. But first, a little taste of a tune. Hopefully, this will be the result of the afternoon. In 1969, Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In by the Fifth Dimension, was once again at number one on the adult contemporary chart. It was there for six weeks. And at the time, it made it one of the top 20 songs of the rock era, given its status on the charts. Here's the Fifth Dimension. When we come back, let's do it. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Great today. Thank you. How are you? Doing very well, thanks. I want to talk about the, uh, the passing of David Milgard a few days ago. And uh, as most of your listeners will know, Mr. Milgard was wrongly convicted of murder way back in uh, 1969. Uh, he was convicted of the, uh, the brutal stabbing and sexual assault of a woman in uh, Saskatoon. And just uh, very quickly, uh, I, of course, saw the story and didn't bring it up. I left it to you. <laughs> That's where my <laughs> mind actually went. So he was indeed convicted of rape and murder. The lady's name is Gail Miller. She's a nurse in Saskatchewan. She was on her way to work. He was sentenced to life behind bars and spent, I think, 23 years in prison until he was acquitted. So this is an extraordinary story. You know, people in this neck of the woods, they'll be familiar with the Greg Parsons story or the Ronald Dalton story. But David Milgard, probably the most famous case of the wrong, wrongfully convicted in Canada. Uh, absolutely. If not in the uh, English common law world. Um, he spent. Uh, he died at 69, so he spent uh, 23 years of his life uh, incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So a full third of his life behind bars. And and uh, he was 16 or 17 years old when he was arrested and charged with that offense. You know, so he wasn't even an adult. Yeah, he'd go on to say that he went into prison as a, a, t- a 19-year-old teenager, came out as a 44-year-old teenager. Yeah. Amazing yeah. stuff. And it, it absolutely is. And, you know, if you look back at... Uh, you can you can do a uh, online search of uh, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, the decision that they handed down in in upholding his uh, his conviction, and then subsequently he applied to the Supreme Court of Canada for leave to appeal, and that was denied by the Supreme Court. So he didn't even get a uh, you know a full um, 
uh, oral hearing at the Supreme Court of Canada, he uh, his appeal uh, there was uh, was dismissed, right? And uh, you know, you, you look at the decision of the uh, of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, and it's it's uh, it's all obviously legal uh, uh, language. You know, the, the accused got a fair trial. He had uh, competent counsel. Uh, there was sufficient evidence uh, upon which a reasonable and properly instructed jury could convict him. And even even um, in the reference to the Minister of Justice in 1992, uh, from uh, that uh, for the um, the mercy of the Crown, there was an application made to have the case reopened. Uh, there's there's still mention uh, in that uh, reference to the to the to the Supreme Court that uh, there's still evidence upon which a reasonable and properly instructed jury could convict him. And I know that's the legal standard for for sending somebody to trial or sending a matter back to trial. But we now know, in retrospect, if you look and you take a retrospective analysis of this case, it was not him. No oh, DNA DNA evidence, yeah. which of course wasn't available upon his initial conviction, proved quite clearly that he it was not him. Yeah, and not only was it not him, he had no link to that killing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just it just makes you shake your head. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, the bigger picture, uh, especially, uh, well, in this country, too, there's, there's still a very strong uh, support for, for capital punishment, even though we uh, formally abolished that in 1976, uh, especially in the United States. I mean, they're bringing back to that family there now, especially at the federal level down mm-hmm. there. And uh, you just got to shake your head and wonder, you know, people who get, who, who get convicted of serious criminal offenses like Milgar did, uh, of murder, and you spend uh, almost a quarter of a century behind bars, and it turns out that it is not you. And you still have people pushing for the the imposition of capital punishment. I just, I just don't understand. I, I really don't. It leaves me scratching my head. Really. Yeah, me too. You know, the whole concept of an eye for an eye just means we all go blind. Um, I, I think this is the case study for why capital punishment is just an atrocious idea because we're not only talking about human life here. Let's just because some people want to talk about money too. It's expensive to be incarcerated in a federal prison, but every time the evaluation is done, and I know you don't, this is not the major concern for you, but it costs way more to house someone on death row for seven years than it does to have them in prison for, uh, I think the number is 60 years. So, and that's based on the number of court challenges that can be brought to bear and the cost of uh, incarcerating someone on what they call death row. So, even if you just want to factor in money, let alone the fact that Mr. Milligar would have been long dead before it was proven that he had nothing to do with killing a Gail Miller. So, there's every reason in the world to not be a proponent of uh, of capital punishment, in my personal opinion. Uh, I, I concur with you. And, you know, the only reason Mr. Milgard and, and in this jurisdiction, Mr. Parsons and Mr. Drugan, the only reason that their convictions were overturned and uh, in the case of Mr. Parsons and acquittal was entered and Mr. Milgard was formally exonerated and Mr. Drugan's uh, charge was eventually stayed by the Crown. And Mr. Dalton was exonerated. And Mr. D- yes, yeah. For the killing yeah, of, I think, his was, wife, Brenda. Yes, strangling her. Yep, that is that is correct. He was acquitted at second trial. The only reason that Mr. Parsons, Mr. Drukin, and Mr. Milgard were acquitted, or in the case of Mr. Drukin, he's charged with state, um, was not because of some some legal maneuver at the Court of Appeal or at the Supreme Court of Canada. It was because of biology. It wasn't because of criminology. Was DNA that finally put the boots to those cases, 
And in the case of Mr. Milgaard, it was the unrelenting and tireless effort of his now late mother to get that case reopened and get the uh, forensic uh, uh, exhibits, uh, you know, the, the, the semen uh, stain on Miss Miller's underwear, I think, re-examined, and it, it conclusively proved that it was not her son and pointed the uh, police in the direction of uh, Mr. Fisher, right? So it was. It wasn't legal. It wasn't legal maneuvering. It was DNA, right? That eventually exonerated Mr. Milgard. Right? And, and beyond his mother, even Milgard, while in prison, I think the group that he established called the Justice Group for people who are wrongfully convicted and advocating on their behalf. He was a co-founder of a group called Innocence Canada, which, of course, Mr. Dalton would have been. Uh, that group would have supported Mr. Dalton's exoneration in particular. So, you know, when you when you face the 23 years wrongfully convicted, regardless if they, I think he was awarded 10 million dollars or something, you can't buy back 23 years lost. And apparently, had a very rough ride while he was in prison. So, it's an amazing case story and. You know, to be an advocate as opposed to a simply bitter man takes a pretty strong character. Uh, I don't know if I could be like that. No, I'm sure I couldn't. No. Uh, You take away, you know, you're going in at 16 or 17 years old and you come out at 40 or 41. All your 20s, your 30s, the the prime decades of your life when you should be getting an education, getting uh, employment, starting a family maybe, uh, all that taken away from you and... uh, I don't know. It's easy for uh, when you when you don't have, to have any skin in the game for the, uh, you know when you're looking at the, uh, the view from the cheap seats. You say uh, capital punishment. You got to make that guy pay. That uh, somehow you know this is retribution or or this is justice. But I don't think so. I think uh, capital punishment is state sanctioned murder. Uh, and it's never proven to be a deterrent either. I mean, some of the punishments people look at you know tough on crime. Uh, even if, you know, I don't know this is not Canada, but, you know, three strikes you're out kind of stuff. It hasn't been a deterrent. It's been just an extraordinary heavy-handed punishment because some of those strikes might be nonviolent crimes. If you have a couple of felonies on your record and you get another one, whether it be, I'm not even going to just throw one out there, but the, the tough-on-crime stuff completely avoids and eliminates conversation about making the public safer, which would be, dealing with recidivism, root causes for why people end up in, in uh, interacting with the criminal justice system. And, of course, there's always going to be people that have an evil streak that will, they'll commit a crime regardless of what society does to try to help them beforehand. But we don't talk about rehabilitation and avoidance as much as we talk about punishment. And I think we're kind of missing it because if we had fewer and less severe crimes to deal with, we wouldn't have to be so focused or worried about uh, the punishment associated with the crimes. But that's, that's very much become the politics of it versus what is actual pragmatic policy and we get caught up in the rhetoric you know apparently there's one side of the political spectrum that's tough on crime the other isn't but if all hands realize that if we wanted the communities to be safer we should talk about being safe as opposed to being how we punish folks that's just maybe my own Pollyanna point of view but anyway there you go I'll give you the last word Colin you know I I, I don't know in the future maybe 5, 10, 20 years down the road if uh, capital punishment is going to be put back on the radar screen in this country much much like Roe versus Wade is in the United States you know that that was set in law in 1973 and now it looks like the Supreme Court down there is going to is going to overturn that decision I wonder in this country are we going to uh, have a future Supreme Court that's going to revisit capital punishment and uh, and put, uh, especially now that we have the charter, uh, will there be any uh, charter arguments made against capital punishment? And what would a future Supreme Court decide? Because uh, capital punishment could be brought back, you know. 
uh, let's hope that conversation doesn't happen. And of course, that's once again the politics of it, as as opposed to what actually makes sense. What politicians do is they take the temperature not only in this room but the adjacent rooms, being south of the border, and that helps them devise their political commentary, their talking points, their platform, whatever you want to say, however you want to characterize it. Calling off to the break. Appreciate your time this morning. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, There will still be people completely in favor of capital punishment because the the whole concept of an eye for an eye. But in the big scheme of things, does it even make sense? Even if you just use one case study, David Milgard would have been long dead before he was exonerated. He had nothing to do with it. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three, say good morning to the president of Avalon Trailways. That's Rick Nosworthy. Rick, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing all right, Buck. Doing all right. So we spoke with uh, Minister Sarah Studley here on the show last week, talking about the, the mandatory helmets for everyone who rides an ATV side-by-side and otherwise. I'm sure you get more reaction than I do. What are you hearing? Uh, we're hearing a lot. Uh, a, a lot of positive, uh, a lot of misinformation, Patty. But uh, the bottom line is a helmet is going to save your life, and that's been proven over and over again many times and it's certainly not the ugly beast that a lot of people are talking about it's a helmet and it will save your life on an atv i've never really understood any pushback or argument uh, against wearing a helmet the side by side is where people are focusing in i do know someone who has one and as pointed out by minister studley there will be a sticker on the inside of the royal royal cage that recommends you wear a helmet but of course that might be a liability issue i don't really know but Does anybody have, in your opinion, a fair pushback here when you're enclosed in a a space that many side-by-sides present? You have seatbelt on, there's some concerns with larger people, taller people, and the the size restrictions, you know, the area inside the roll cage. What do you make of the side-by-side issue? Uh, I think you need to wear a helmet. And, Patty, what it is is a three, uh, I guess the protection element inside a side-by-side is three points. One is the roll bar. The roll bar protects you for a rollover. Um, the helmet protects you from the roll bar and the seatbelt keeps you in the cockpit. Without either one of us, without the seatbelt, you're ejected from the machine and the roll bar that's designed to save your life will probably crush you. And the helmet protects you from hitting the roll bar. It's it, proven. Is there, a, like, some of the arguments that we've heard uh, that you can't fit in it, like, it, it's just not true. Uh, I, I know a fellow 6566 put on their helmet and get in. Like these manufacturers design these machines for off road use. They design them to have helmets to be worn in them. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And of course, then I hear the story of oh, terrible peripheral vision. You can't see out of the helmet. Like if that was the case, the helmet would not be allowed to be made. Like, that might have been a case back in the day when people were getting shot out of the cannons back in the 40s. But I guarantee you it's not the case now, and it hasn't been the case with helmets coming into Canada in 50 years. Peripheral vision is a very big thing. And then, of course, I'm hearing, oh, it's too warm and side-by-side. Oh, I can't wear this. I can't wear that. They're wearing them all over the world, and Newfoundland's climate does not suggest that you shouldn't wear a helmet. And also, there are different helmets, just like clothing. You know, you don't wear a floater suit when you're going fishing in July. You don't need to wear a full-face helmet when you're ATVing in July. There's different helmets, different styles. There are Ventus. 
you know, and then we're getting the argument, oh, well, you don't have to wear a helmet in a convertible or you don't have to wear a helmet in a Jeep. Like, a convertible or a Jeep does not operate in the environment that a side-by-side work operates in. You know, if you ever see a, a convertible with such a high center of gravity as a Jeep and low-pressure tires, well, you know, going in over a cutover, well, then they might have an argument. But that's not the case. And with the Jeeps, when you see Jeeps going off-road and in competition and rock climbing, everybody's wearing a helmet. So, it, it, you know, some of the arguments just do not make sense. Um, they're, they're fully enclosed. Um, well, you know, what constitutes a fully enclosed side-by-side? Some of these are canvas with plastic windows. Uh, a lot of them, even with the glass, the glass is not tested. Um, these machines, once again, are being used in such an environment that a helmet is important. You know, we, when you roll these machines over, you, you know, things come into the compartments. You know, rocks and stumps. So keep in mind, if you see one going down the road, you know, or, like, you know, down a trail, that's one thing. But these machines are designed to be in such a hostile, challenging environment. And and that's where the fun is with them. That's where, you know, you, you need your helmet. The other big issue is uh, the distance that you have to be able to see before you should be able to cross the highway. You know, like all of these things, enforcement will be the key. But what's your message to folks? Because I actually get a little whiff of fear uh, when I'm behind the wheel of my rig and I see someone poised to cross the highway on their ATV. I know you got to get from side to side. Everyone gets it. But... What do you want ATV riders or side-by-side uh, riders, drivers, to consider when crossing the highway? Because it kind of stresses me out as the, as the motoring public. What's the issue there, and what have the changes been? Yeah, that's a good point, Patty, because it terrifies me, too. Um, the change has gone from 100 meters to 150 meters. Um, the problem is a lot of times, you know, when you're crossing the highway, there's people inexperienced from crossing the highway. You know, you could get an underage rider, which is not permitted, but, you know, unfortunately that was the case. I took a man's life there a little while ago, uh, or last, like, uh, August or September, on, on uh, Pitts Memorial, I believe. And uh, that type of thing, it's a timing thing. Um, you know, you certainly, certainly need that extra time because it's very hard to judge an oncoming car, especially if you don't have a lot of driving experience. And then, you know, you throw in something like a motorcycle, which because of its size, uh, it's harder to judge a speed. A motorcycle, then again, like getting between the headlights of another car and the grill, you, you lose it again. So, you know, that extra 150 or that extra 50 meters is certainly going to make a difference. And, you know, just be very, very cautious. Like when these machines are crossing roads, they're out of their element. And, you know, you certainly need the time. Um, another big thing with the regulations now is you're going to be able to uh, travel a kilometer along the side of the road to get to a trailhead. And that's going to be, you know, a, a good rule when used properly. And it, the whole idea is to go from trail to trail. It's not to go to the trail to the store or trail to your buddy's house or trail to the gas station as much as convenient as that would be. It's to go from trailhead to trailhead. The only exception from what I can hear is if, it's, you, if, you're, if there's a trail within a kilometer of your house and you're licensed, registered, and insured, and you had to be licensed, registered, and insured, you can go from your, leave from your house to get to that trail. But when you're on that trail, 
you could only go from trailhead to trailhead. And once again, you had to have a, carry a valid driver's license. Your machine has to be registered and you need insurance. And, you know, someone's asking me about the one exemption. The one exemption for a helmet is if you're doing some hunting and trapping activities, a bunch of stops, and you're traveling less than 20 kilometers per hour. That's the only exemption included or involved. Uh, last one, Rick, and it's a little bit off topic, but in the city of Cornerbrook, you know, a bunch of ideas where they think outside the box, and they allowed ATVs to go in on the main roads for access to businesses and otherwise. It worked. Have you heard much conversation in other communities uh, about that approach and what the riders made of it? Because it's a real shame that if the trail just skirts the city or the town and no one drops in to get anything because they're not allowed on the roads, then there's a few dollars left on the table. What did you make of the plan? And do you hear any more about it? Yeah, right, Patty. That's, that's very important. Cornerbrook is a model that's worked. Uh, to be quite honest with you, Patty, I didn't think it was going to work. Um, I don't know if it'll work ever, but Cornerbrook worked. I've used it myself. It gets people into the town, and the people in Cornerbrook have been very respectful of us. And I think with anything, the respect goes both ways. And like a lot of times that we're seeing in our ATV world is the, the un, I guess, the underage rider or the irresponsible rider. But keep in mind, those irresponsible and underage is a very, very small segment of the 40-odd or 50-odd thousand ATVs that we got here. 100%. And, you know, sometimes that we end up working towards the, you know, ha- or having to deal with the lowest common denominator. And, and that's sad. But Cornerbrook is a model where it's worked. Um, it's worked out in Concession Bay North area in places. It, it, it's, it's worked uh, in, in Garnish. It was one of the first ones. It, it's worked in places all over the province. It's worked in places all over Canada. And, it, like, you know, it works in Gander. You know, we, we haven't heard of places where it doesn't work. And it comes down to mutual respect. Yes, you're going to have problems, but, like, we're having problems now. So, you know, that's a big thing. And, Patty, one of the things that you just mentioned, too, I won't take up too much of your time, but to go back to the exemption of hunting and fishing, yep. um, I certainly hope that that gets respected because my own opinion as a safety instructor and somebody who's been around this, like, my God, forever, is when you're hunting, sorry, hunting and trapping, not hunting and fishing. When, when you're hunting, to me, that's the most vulnerable time that you are on an ATV. Because as a hunter, you're probably not paying attention to your ATV and you're, you're distracted, you know, just by, I guess, definition, you're hunting. So, you know, you're looking, you're not really watching where you're going. Chances are you're going in places where you can't get with your truck. You're going in over a cutover and stuff like that, which is dangerous. Then if you get your animal, you're going to try to get as much of it as you can on your ATV to get out of the country. And, you know, that's dangerous as well. So, you know, a helmet, to me, that is the one glitch in this uh, legislation that I'm really not pleased with. I'm pleased with it all, you know, overall. I think they did a good job. They did the research. But this hunting thing, um, it, it opens it up for sure. That uh, You know, I, I think, once again, that's a dangerous time. And I would like, you know, from to rethink that. But that being said, if it's not law, common sense should kick in because uh, many a hunter should be still wearing their helmets. Uh, this thing about, oh, I can't get a shot or I can't see, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you, if you think that you can't shoot with a helmet on, uh, you, somebody should tell that to the military because I guarantee they all wear helmets. And, you know, I've hunted with, it with a helmet on, and the helmet has not been my problem. Appreciate this this morning, Rick. Thanks a lot. Well, Patty, we appreciate the opportunity with the 24th of May weekend coming up. Uh, like, this is kickoff for us, so uh, we really appreciate the opportunity. Anytime.
Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Rick Noseworthy, the president of Avalon Trailways. Time for a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Mona, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah. Um, I just want to comment on that 16-year-old that was uh, accused of uh, rape. Kind of drove me off the tracks. Holy macro, I can't imagine a 16-year-old and spending all these years in, in prison. It just made me sick. Are you talking about the David Milgard story? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So, anyway, what I called about... Um, yeah, the law that they're trying to pass in the states about anti-abortion. Well, they're talking about overturning the precedent, which okay. is Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I think it should be should not be a decision for the courts. I think it should definitely be entirely up to the patient and her health team. The courts have no idea what's going on in people's lives. I mean, they're further victimizing the women as far as I'm concerned. I can't imagine having to go through something like that. Can't even go there. And then uh, having to deal with uh, the courts. And But if it's not protected by law and it's not a legal precedent that would rule the roost across the country, then you'd have just a mixed bag of accessibility depending on the kind of state that you live in. So there's a reason why when it's enshrined in, in legislation, that's, that's a protection that unless they overturn it will protect women's reproductive rights right across the country because, you know, the big clamor now is states' rights, you know, and that, that's the fallback for many Republicans all the time, states' rights. My goodness, some of the moves made in certain states already has made it extremely dangerous. And one thing we know historically is even if an abortion isn't legal and treated as health care and regulated, women still will get abortions. They'll just get unsafe abortions. And people will try to argue against that. But that's the that's the historical documented facts. Exactly, because the ones that's going to suffer are the people there who can't afford to go other places to, you know, to uh, make their decision. What they, what, it's just uh, victimizing the, the women um, who don't have, you know, the uh, opportunity to, to look after their own reproductive or their own situations. They're, they're just, it's going to end up with women who um, who's now victim, victimized, being victimized more. And, uh, you know, that's very, really, really troublesome, troublesome for me to think what they're, you know, I can't imagine. Yeah, I, I don't even know how the conversation even gets reignited. It's amazing that there's a leaked legal opinion from the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court and supporters of overturning the law are more concerned with the leak than they are of women's health. Look, I get it. If folks will have a religious or moral stance opposed to abortion, that's fine. But if we don't acknowledge the plain and simple fact that no matter what the law says, women will get abortions. And if it's not done as safe as possible for the mother, then we're just asking for trouble. And so many of the people who are supporting the overturning of Roe v. Wade are, are pro-birth, but don't really care a whole lot after birth. You know, it's, it's extraordinary stuff. So it's a very contentious issue, but I'm not afraid to talk about these things on the show because that's, you know, that's part of the, part of the conversation societally. I think, I think it's all about autocracy government, and it's, it's very troublesome for me because um, we're not safe from it here in in Canada. I'm worried about what's going on in Quebec too. About the um, the uh, teacher that was um, fired because she wouldn't wear hijab. Well, hijab? does she want to wear her hijab? Hijab. That that law is 
unbelievable. And now the next piece of nonsense going on in Quebec is they're basically not just trying to protect the French language, they're trying to kind of do, do away with English speaking in the <laughs> province of Quebec. I mean, that that's not going to pass any, pass any human rights challenge anyway because uh, oh, the obvious. Yeah. Anyway, there's weird it's stuff goes on there. It's very troublesome to me, you know, because, I mean, French language, we pride ourselves in being bilingual. I'm not bilingual. I'd love to be. And I know people would love to be. And, and you know, I didn't have French when I was going to school. I had Latin. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I think it's all about control. And it's really bothering me. It's hard to argue that. My Latin is uh, pretty much reserved to mea culpa. <laughs> Pardon me? Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I have had, <laughs> I've had to apologize many times. Uh, Mona, nice to have you on the show. Appreciate your oh, time. Thank you. Take your care. You. All right, you're yep, welcome. You're Bye-bye. Too. All right, that is uh, break time. Appreciate Tom's patience. When we come back, we'll start off with Tom, and then lots of time to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I want to start with um, pointing out that right now the dandelions are perfect for harvesting, so people looking for a nice, healthy uh, meal. And as well, if you if you clean them really good and drop them in some boiling water for two minutes, you can put them in bags and freeze them. It's, and you can also turn the roots into tea, too. And it's good for your liver. It's a healthy choice. Start. Good for the bees. Well, that's the flip side, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. You want to leave a few there for the bees. Yeah, you're right. Um, I want to jump over to uh, pondering. I don't know the answer to this question, but it'd be interesting to see what demand for fuel has happened. There's a lot of people obviously have to get back and forth to work, and they and they um, they're kind of they're stuck. But I wonder how much the demand for fuel has changed, either by people substituting, while I, by like I know you've mentioned a few times, you and your wife have swapped vehicles, or people who might be carpooling or what they're doing. Because you know the price of fuel going up. And I know anecdotally, I have a friend who's a contractor, and uh, he's got his diesel truck parked, and he's driving his car around, whereas normally he'd be in his truck. I know retired people have turned down the thermostats on their on their furnaces and so you know I, I wonder if there's a windfall actually being realized by the province or if it's being balanced out by uh, by by demand drops because because most of Newfoundland's money would come in the form of well I guess it's kind of split between the gas tax and the carbon tax which is a set fee per liter so every liter that it drops in in consumption that's a direct loss and then of course the HST is a is on top of everything I don't know how to get a consumption number, but, you know, price point pressure will drive people's behaviors. So demand uh, in my household is down. I don't know if I can, you know, if that's reflective of the community at large, but I'm going to guess it is. Halifax Narrative Research and Legit Group did a did a survey and it indicated that 60% of Atlantic Canadians said they're driving less as a result. And, and so, you know, I mean, I guess that would translate to here. It should anyway. I would think so. You know. Well, I hear people so, that are canceling, you know, it would have been a Sunday drive or it would have been a little tour around the island, the old staycation. But because of the cost of fuel, I've heard a lot of people report to me whether or not it's true is that they're canceling those plans. So uh, consequently, I would imagine d- demand is down consequently just about everywhere. I mean, if I'm making those types of decisions, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show are. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I guess that's a bit of a benefit to the environment, but I, I'm not so sure. It's It's got to be hard on people doing those long commutes and people who just have to burn the 
fuels to do what they do, keep their house warm and all that Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, for those people who are making these choices, like I drive by the car lots, and obviously they're pretty bare, but all that's there are trucks and SUVs. And um, you know, I call on people to, you know, go into those dealers and say, listen, I want to have a I want to have something that's fuel efficient. I, I don't want to buy a truck anymore. I don't want to buy an SUV. That's the only way the big three are going to going to change their behavior. I think uh, is if we we demand that they, you know, that there is change and the world has changed and the price of energy has changed and and we need to make more responsible climate decisions. In my opinion, and uh, and the only way that's going to happen, I believe, is if we change our behavior and, and demand different offerings especially here in Newfoundland, where we seem to have a real propensity for larger vehicles and trucks. And yeah, there's, there's still going to be a variety of sectors of, the, uh, of industry that are going to need those types of vehicles. I totally get it. There are a lot of people that have trucks that probably don't actually have a specific need for the truck. They just prefer to drive a truck. But I don't know how we demand anything. If there's going to be the phase-out of in- internal combustion engines by 2035, you know, your grandfather and whatever is already on the road. But other than that, you know, you have to give people the opportunity to make the change. You have to give people the opportunity to see... Uh, alternative sources of uh, transportation come back to earth a little bit in price for the infrastructure to be in place. So this is a generational issue as opposed to flip a switch, all of a sudden EVs are nothing, boys. So uh, I think we've just got to have a lot of different things in place before any legitimate move beyond government subsidies is in play because right now we couldn't even handle it. You know, realistically, if that phase-out happened in the next 10 years, we could not possibly manage it in this province with the current state of infrastructure. So things take time. Yeah, and again, you know, getting a lot of people are hung up on infrastructure for uh, for electric vehicles or hybrids or whatever they choose to do. But, you know, but, you know, 95% of everybody's charging is going to happen at their house. Very, you know, and they'll people will will plan around that. I mean, they'll have a charger at their cabin, whether that's a generator or whatever else, they'll have a charger at their house. And that's where most things, and and, and employers, it'll become a competitive thing. Employers will start having chargers at work. So although the infrastructure is important for tourism or for people who have to make those long commutes, um, you know, I think think that's an over-focused on challenge. You just just mentioned long-distance commute uh, as it pertains to the price of gas. I think the same could be uh, part of the electric vehicle conversation. I also think that these are additional costs for the charger at the cabin if you had to increase your panel, 200 amp service, those types of things. These are things that we're going to have to consider before there's an all-out onslaught of it's EVs or you're out of luck. So I just think there's things that have to be part of the change. Plus, these big transformational changes, it's worthwhile acknowledging that change is difficult and to accommodate a reasonable change and a reasonable transition, it takes time for individuals to make up their mind. It takes time for the industry to catch up with the numbers of vehicles available, the industry to catch up with mass mass uh, production, which can be part of reducing price. So there's a bunch of things there that I think re- absolutely require some careful consideration as to how quick any of these moves are made. Next vehicle I look for, I'm pretty sure I'm going to look at a hybrid, but that's just me. And I can't speak for ev- everyone else's purchase power, and some of the other moving parts that are probably not in place to make it easy for them. So anyway, that's my points on it. But go ahead. yeah, you know, I, I I struggle because after you know I've been driving one a, a fully electric now since October, and and obviously I'm not the norm. But um, I I look at it as you know if if we if globally we have to get to net zero, which basically means everybody gets to emit 2.5 tons of carbon a year. 
Um, and we have to do it fairly quickly. It's, it's a struggle to see how we can't do how we can take our time, how we can allow generations. I don't think we have generations to do this. And, and there's been lots of periods in time when humanities had to make dramatic changes when we just set the bar very high, whether it was the space race or whether it was, uh, you know, the, the Internet and all these things. I, so, I, you know, I think the first thing is just realizing that we have to change and then figuring out how we all play a role in that change. Uh, I just want to quickly just point something out that's really, you know, really been kind of playing on me. We, we keep blaming GE and the software for the problems with the Labrador Island link. And I, you know, I, I kind of sit back and think, well, if my computer's hard drive is crappy or if my power supply is not working or if uh, I don't have good power coming into my house, uh, you know, blaming Windows um, seems a little disingenuous. And I, you know, I, you know, I, I wonder if the problems with the synchronous condensers or the quality of the conductors or the length of the transmission or all these different factors if you know we're they're saying now another year i mean are we are we giving them a pass by allowing them to blame it on ge no i just think it's a component i think there's lots of areas unfortunately for us as ratepayers taxpayers there's a variety of places to point fingers of blame many of which were revealed during the leblanc inquiry but one of the major hurdles now with getting the power from the generating station to the island is that link and that's a software issue you know i know we can talk about soldier soldiers pan and synchronous condensers i know we can talk about risk in the long range mountains and 1100 kilometers of transmission through some pretty uh tough terrain so i think there's a variety of places to point but I don't know how we avoid talking about that software glitch. It's one thing to have the explosion and obliteration of schedule, the explosion in cost, but if you can't get the power to the island, then that would be the number one hurdle that has to be settled or solved, I think. Yeah, no, I do, but I, I just feel like we're not going deep enough on it. I just feel like if all we keep talking about is the software, I mean, maybe it's an impossibility. Maybe we've built a system that that the software just can't balance. There's just too many variables, and, and whether that's, fair or not to you know to to do that i mean if if that is the case if 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 it's the, if that's the problem i mean if you think about a long line and and if just a couple of points are weak it doesn't matter what the software does i mean i mean i've been involved in electrical things where you get these weird wacky things where you might have a bad breaker for example or a breaker that is that's coming or going or you could have a, par, a wire that heats up or a bad plug and and you know you look at all that length of time and if you're and it, it may just be it's all I'm, I mean, obviously the software would be the ma- if it's magic and it can it can override all those things because I guess that's the problem because because they tried to put all the power on it all the different legs because they're able to bring it down one leg but they can't consistently get full power they can only get about half and when they tried to put all of it on then they they tripped breakers in places so you know I, j- I realize that they're working as hard as they can but I don't I think we're reinventing the wheel I mean there's links in this world that can carry as much power as a generated a muskrat which I think about 824 megawatts even though that's max output which we'll never see so anyway very quickly well, before Quebec I have to go it. Tom anyway. yeah Quebec does it with Upper Churchill Wayne sure they do so. 5,400 yeah, plus megawatts at the Upper Churchill. But you would think if the software is so magic that you know that you just be able to go get it from Quebec or anywhere else. So this is why I struggle with you know with with the, with the reports we're getting. But anyway, you know we're kind of stuck. But I I hope everybody stays as safe as they can, and and we just kind of try and think critically about all these things and try and everybody just tag in and do their part. All of us. Yeah, some of them might be associated with AC/DC conversion too, right? So anyway, off we I go. We should do it in in Quebec with with the Upper Churchill. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Take Next care, time. everyone. Stay all right. Bye bye. Uh, let's take a break uh, today. Today is World Hypertension Day. 
There's probably a fair bit of that in this province. Joining us after the break is the president of Hypertension Canada, and he's a faculty uh, member at the University of Alberta. Is, what, is that what UAB stands for? Okay, that's Dr. Ross Siuki. Right after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of Hypertension Canada. He's a member of the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Alberta. That's Dr. Ross Siuki. Dr. Siuki, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. I don't pretend to know anything about hypertension, but is hypertension high blood pressure? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Same thing. All right. That's what I was wondering right off the onset. Um, How serious is hypertension and where does it lead? Because high blood pressure seems to be fairly innocuous for some, but it can be potentially dangerous for many. Actually, you know, it's really not innocuous um, uh, in that for anybody. um, It's over time. uh, It leads to... uh, a lot of different complications. It's just that it doesn't happen right away. The problem with high blood pressure for us, uh, trying to teach people about it, is it doesn't produce any symptoms. And so you have it, but you don't realize that you have it. And the only way to know is get your blood pressure measured. So it is, high blood pressure is the most important risk factor for premature death and disability in the world. 1.4 billion people in the world have it. So it is the most important public health problem in terms of the numbers of people that are affected. So it's as fundamental as getting your blood pressure checked, just like when you go through triage at the emergency room. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why, you know, it's a vital sign, right? Uh, And uh, so it is very important. It's, It's the leading cause of stroke and heart attack. And kidney failure, it also contributes to uh, dementia as well as erectile dysfunction. So a lot of problems result from hypertension. Uh, you say that there's not the presence of symptoms that would be a, a quote-unquote dead giveaway that you have high blood pressure. A friend of mine who is now being treated for his high blood pressure, his hypertension, he told me that the symptoms that he brought to his family doctor, not knowing what, the, what it meant, is that it, all of a sudden, not a musician, doesn't work around heavy equipment, had a constant buzzing in his ears, and he was having nosebleeds, and consequently diagnosed with hypertension. Are there other some potential symptoms people could be aware of? Because you know what it's like. People are hesitant to go to doctors, especially men. There's a shortage of family doctors here. The emergency room was blocked constantly. So are there some giveaways that people should keep an eye out for? Well, that's the problem is there really aren't any consistent wow. symptoms unless unless the blood pressure is very, very high. Then you can get blurred vision, uh, really bad headaches, uh, um, dizziness. Um, yeah, you, people can even go into heart failure, uh, which would show up as short, extreme shortness of breath. Uh, so that's that's at the very extreme end. Thankfully, we don't see that happen very much uh, anymore. Um, but really, the only way you're going to know is to get your blood pressure measured. And I understand, like, I'm a guy too, and, you know, uh, people don't like to go in. Uh, and um, so one of the things that we're, we're suggesting is that you don't have to necessarily go in to see your physician. You can also go into a pharmacy, which is why I'm here uh, today. Uh, we're getting pharmacists to to do that screening uh, for uh, your blood pressure. I know blood pressure, high blood pressure can be treated. Can it be rolled back or cured? No, it cannot. And that's the thing. Um, it is a lifelong treatment. 
there are lots of options for treatment, uh, and there's not a lot of side effects generally. Um, but yes, it is a condition that is with you, uh, like diabetes is. Uh, it's a condition that's with you for the rest of your life, and so it has to be treated. Does it require a pharmaceutical intervention, or can you, you know, be, maybe diet or change your sedentary lifestyle, or do I need some pharmaceutical or prescription? Well, we always try to start with lifestyle measures, but as you know, they're really quite difficult uh, to to comply with. Uh, so, you know, we do recommend that people go out walking, that they get exercise. Um, salt is a bad thing. Salt um, raises your blood pressure, and so cutting back on salt. A healthy diet, uh, more fresh fruits and vegetables, all those things help. But most people, so you can get your blood pressure down quite a bit. If you lose 10 or 15 pounds, your blood pressure will come down as well, uh, even if you're more overweight than that. So those are the things that you can do. But eventually, most people will require medication for that. So our... Sometimes we ask these questions just for context, where we are in the country. We talk about the prevalence of diabetes in this province Mm -hmm. and other heart-related conditions. How about hypertension? Do we have that kind of data available to know where we stand on the the federal level, the provincial Uh, capacities? Yeah, yeah. So actually, Newfoundland has the highest rates of high blood pressure or hypertension in the country. So the rest of the country, yeah, sorry to say that. the rest of the country, the average is about one in four people have hypertension. In in Newfoundland and Labrador, that number is about one in three, so about 33% uh, of people. And uh, so that's part of the reason why I'm here. Um, high rates of, of uh, hypertension, and we've got to do something about it. I'm not even sure if this question is going to make any sense, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So we've talked about the absence of symptoms and what might happen when you get your blood pressure checked. But, you know, some people think about high blood pressure as I work in a high-intensity job. I have a stressful life. I've got problems with my family. People say it makes my blood boil. I've got high blood pressure because of these outside influences. Is that even part of it at all? For some people, yes, it is. Okay. Um, and th- But the reality is... Your body doesn't care where that comes from. <laughs> it's still seeing high blood pressure, right? Regardless of what's causing it. You know, like some people are very sensitive to salt. And, but your body doesn't care. It's high blood pressure, right? And it's going to st- still lead to the same sort of complications. Um, some people are very sensitive to stress in their life. And, you know, uh, we've all got lots of stress these days. Um, but the reality is that's going to be present. And your blood pressure is still high regardless of the cause. Is blood pressure measure standard across the board for guys my size? I'm 6'2", I won't give you the weight, uh, which is uh, overweight uh, somewhat. Uh, So is blood pressure a constant across the board based on your size or your gender, or do people have a specific blood pressure uh, window that they fit into? No, everyone's the same in that regard. Uh, We want to see your blood pressure less than 140 over 90. Uh, And if you have diabetes... Uh, the bar has changed a little bit. It's less than 130 over 80. Uh, so um, one of the things, though, that, that you bring up a good point, if you're a big guy with a big arm, um, you have to make sure that the cuff that they're using is appropriate for your size of arm. So, for example, if you use a cuff that's too small, it's going to make your blood pressure look higher than it actually is. And we don't want that. 
So the, the size of the cuff, like most of the blood pressure machines uh, that you will see in professional use have about four or five different cuff sizes. And so it's really important that you use the right size cuff. Do I recollect seeing in pharmacies uh, a blood pressure measure machine where I simply stick my finger in a, a slot or a, a vice? <laughs> That's not a blood pressure machine. What is that? It's an electrical outlet. No, I'm kidding. Oh, it's an outlet. Um, no, actually, pharmacies do have a kiosk where you can sit down, put your arm in, and get your blood pressure taken. And actually, they're quite... They're quite good as long as you don't run in out of the parking lot and sit down right away. You've got to rest for five minutes. Um, there are machines that you can get that take your blood pressure from your wrist or your finger, but we do not recommend them because they're not well validated for accuracy. And, you, you know, you don't want misleading numbers. No, I, I don't imagine they're as calibrated as the old cough traditional they pumped ball. Yeah, okay, that makes all the sense yeah, in the world. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation this morning, Doctor? Well, I was just going to suggest that um, if, uh, if any of this resonates with you, we are running uh, province-wide blood pressure screening uh, today. And so you can go and get your blood pressure properly measured at a pharmacy um, and if you want to see the list of participating pharmacies, you can go to the website of the School of Pharmacy at Munn and, uh, and it lists uh, the pharmacies that are participating uh, in this. We're hoping to screen 1,000 people uh, today on World Hypertension Day just to get an idea of the distribution of blood pressures uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to, to get an idea of where we need to start uh, to work on this. And my colleague, Dr. Tiffany Lee, from the School of Pharmacy, is, is leading uh, this, uh, this project today. Really appreciate making time for the show this morning, Dr. Siyuki. Thank you very much. Nice to have you on. Take, Take good care, care. everybody. All right. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Ross Siyuki, President of Hypertension Canada, member of the University of Alberta's Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry. Let's take a break. I should actually get that list. Maybe we'll flick it out, Dave, on our Twitter box for folks to have a look if there's a pharmacy near where they live to get their blood pressure checked today. I probably should. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Dave, you're on the air. Line number two, Dave, you're on the air. Is the pot up, Dave, by chance out there on line two? Dave Callahan going once, going twice, and he's on hold. All right, let's keep going. Line number one. Harold, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and good morning to the wonderful listening audience that tunes into your beautiful show, Patty. Uh, I'm First, I'd like to give thanks to God and Patty for letting me come out of here and give... Uh, a little bit of who I am uh, you know to the listening audience my name is Harold Williams and I went away to Ontario for 25 years working to change my life and when I came back to St. John's two years ago it wasn't the city I left it it looked like uh, I came back to a city of despair and darkness and where I'm coming with that is, you know, myself and my brother, Mike, I started a organization, Gangsters for God. And my motto behind that is to steal back broken hearts for God. Because down the penitentiary, you know, I know I was a resident in there. And it's it's not a safe place for the prison guards to be working. And it's, 
definitely not a good place for people that deserve to go there at times to get well and to come back out into society and pay taxes and everything and to become a you know a, a benefit to society instead of a burden and you know i just heard the canadian mental health they're advertising and you know we're going to be going down to the penitentiary tomorrow at 12 o'clock with our bibles and we're fighting and praying for newfoundland in general it's to make a safer society and learn people that are imprisoned to come out and try to do better we just can't leave them in there and forget about them because they're coming back into society and i'm praying you know that the mental health society even guards policemen all the powers to be that believes in the mental health system and how they talk about they need help because some of the sickest people in the world right now are locked up behind prison bars because society don't know what to do with them they got a new mental illness and is an addiction to crystal meth and fentanyl that I really don't think doctors or anybody knows how to deal with. So we're going to be, uh, you know, fighting in peace and love for all the broken people. And we're praying we can all come to a common conclusion and a sense that all lives matter. And uh, we just try to make a better Newfoundland that I grew up in that was full of love and light, Patty. It has changed. I mean, the prevalence of simply if we're just focusing on drugs and the type of illicit drugs that are being consumed, mm. it is unbelievable. And we do know if you listen to lawyers and judges and folks in and around the mm. courts, so many of the people that are making their way into the courtrooms are dealing with a mental health matter and or addicted to drugs. And so if we don't focus in on those two, then we're going to let an awful load of people uh, fall through the cracks. And it just doesn't impact them. It's their families. It's their friends. It's the community at large. I, I like the point, and I try to make this all the time, and it's not to try to be too, too oversimplified. Mm-hmm. For, if people commit a crime, of course, doing the time is part of it. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. is. But we all know that 99% of people who go behind bars are coming back out. If we don't prepare them to, quote-unquote, reintegrate into society safely, mm-hmm. properly, then we're just creating a more unsafe community, and that is in nobody's best interest. So just to turn a, a blind eye and a deaf ear and to treat them as second-class citizens or less thans is not doing any of us any favors. So we've got to really not only focus in on how and why people end up in prison, but how we deal with them, the policies and programs in place when they get out, because they're getting out god bless you patty you know i just something just came to my mind i'm not saying this is a good analogy it's like you know we start school in kindergarten and then a child has problems from grade one and two you don't just condemn him and throw him away and say he can't do three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven and twelve like what kind of a society are we going to have so, you know, Patty, I just pray that coming on here today, a lot of people with the got love in their hearts and no judgment will come so we could change society. It's not even about, it's about everything. Change society for the, the little grandchildren that are going to be born in the future. It's about the future of everybody coming. We got to make this place a safer place to live where people are not afraid to come out. It's part of it. And we spoke with your brother uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, too, Harold. So I appreciate your time uh, today. Good luck with it tomorrow. Thank you, Patty. Have a blessed day. You too. Take care, Harold. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. 
last chance. Dave, hold. Let's go. Line number three. Mary, you're on the air. I only have a question for you. The doctor was on and gave 140 over 90. Yep. He gave another number. Can you tell me what that was and what it was for? Sure. It was uh, people with diabetes. The window is more like 130 over 80. 130 over 80. Thank you very much. No problem. I'm surprised I remembered that. But anyway, <laughs> there you go, Mary. Appreciate your time. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Line number four. Ruby, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm calling this morning about, not usually, usually I don't watch the House of Assembly, but last night I was uh, switching my channels and I happened to watch the House of Assembly here in Newfoundland, Labrador, that was on till 12 o'clock last night, and I was really, really, really disturbed. First of all, when they got up to... um, say their speeches or ask questions. Uh, the member for Harbour, Maine, the woman, I don't know her first name, but she's uh, uh, Ottenheimer Conway. And she got up, which was remarkable, and was asking uh, a lot of questions. And asking questions from her members who had put her in this House of Assembly. And uh, she was excellent, asked a lot of questions. And when she finished, I was totally disturbed when I heard the Minister of Justice, oh, come aboard of this woman. Like, oh, don't dare me, ask me questions. Don't dare me. I, I was totally, as a 79-year-old woman, I was totally disturbed. And you may, you may hear it in my voice this morning. Now, these members, all of these members, were elected here by us people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And if we don't get questions, who uh, who are we going to get answers from? And I have to say that this woman was really, really, uh, the Minister for Harbour, Maine, was really uh, questions about emails that she got from her members. About what topic? Her name is Helen, by the way, just in case you needed or wanted to know her first name. What's her first name? Excuse me. It's Helen. Helen Ottenheimer. Okay. Okay. Her her emails and her questions came from members in in her districts that are really hurting. I mean, let's face it, the people of Newfoundland and Larmador here are really hurting from all the taxes that we're paying here. And uh, this woman to come on and get blood red in the face and everything else and just not give us any answers, but just, uh, I just went to board of this woman. Now, if we can't get uh, questions answered from this, in these members of government, no matter what part of government they're from, there's something wrong with our system. Well, it's called question period for a reason, because it's certainly not answer period. Um, so well, it's question, excuse me, but oh. question period was on a little bit before that. And then she was coming on with her time, and I guess with her time, and, and uh, let's face it, we want to know why she, uh, Premier Fury wants an office in Grand Falls. $5 million. That was one of the questions, and I'd certainly love to know the answer to that, too. But the questions that she was asked, we never got any answers anyway. We don't never get any answers. So what I'm saying, why would you keep a House of Assembly open till 12 o'clock 
if people are just going to flicker back and forth and not and not get any answers from any questions. Okay. Uh, and I think that's a popular complaint, and rightfully so, right across the country, whether it be in provincial legislatures and or the House of Commons. Uh, just very quickly, Ruby. So mm-hmm. the question that Ms. Uh, Ottenheimer Conway, or Conway Ottenheimer, asked of the Minister of Justice, what was that about? Do you remember? Well, it was really, it was re- no, excuse me, it was really not questions. She was stating, she, uh, I don't know why this Minister Savan uh, uh, Cody got up to to answer any of these because she was just more or less stating facts that was emailed from her uh, her voters saying you know people were hurting and so on like that there wasn't really questions about it was just more or less she was stating a fact that all a lot of her members were hurting in her districts and she had gotten so many uh, emails that she wanted answers to so she was just making statements and and all of a sudden, Siobhan Cody got up, uh, or never got up, sitting down, just answered these questions. And I don't I don't blame another member uh, there gotten up and saying he was really disturbed, because I was totally disturbed. Now I am saying that if we cannot ask questions, and instead of getting a runaround. I mean, members have to come out and find out what is going ahead in this province of ours and give us some answers. Because as far as I'm concerned, this, this, this is going on too long. And the same questions are being asked, and no one has given us any answers. So, Patty, I just had to get that off my mind this morning to find out if there's anyone else listened to this program last night got the same kind of a feeling as I did. Oh, I'm sure you're not alone. I generally don't watch uh, much no, in the no, way. No, no, you, you wouldn't have watched this because I'm sort of a night owl, right? I, I, I usually watch different things and then I'll turn over and watch something else. So this was um, just before closing of 12 o'clock last night. Okay. And I thought for sure when I listened to your program this morning then I would probably get some members from Harbour, Maine, calling in to to check on this also. Because uh, what I'm saying, uh, uh, Minister Cody is is Minister of Justice here in this province. No, Minister, she's not, though. Well, doesn't she... uh, Siobhan Cody is the Minister of Finance and uh, finance. Deputy Premier. I'm sorry, she, she handles the purse strings. So if we can uh, ask this, this woman questions about different things, how are we going to get some answers? So Understood. Just, Point taken. I'm just stating that this morning to find out if there's anyone else uh, listen to this and what their views on, what would their views be on it, and... Um, and so on, because, listen, if we can't ans- ask questions to anyone, uh, what's the point of having a House of Assembly open till 12 o'clock in the night? I appreciate the time this morning. Roby, thanks for this. I'm sure you're not I, alone. I am. Uh, no, I'm sure I'm not alone. Okay. And um, I hope some people, other people, because as far as I'm concerned, now a lot of our young people are going just like flies. But I'm crying out to young people today. Young people that, that are intelligent, young people that can come out 
and try to put their put their foot in the doorway to get some some system to back back in our province of Newfoundland and Labrador to try to get some government running here the way it should be run. Thank you, Patty, and have a good day. You too, Ruby. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Ryan Cleary. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thanks for taking the call, sir. No problem. Interesting conversation. Before I get to my topic, that was an interesting conversation you had on hypertension, high blood pressure. I may just go get mine checked today. God knows there's enough stresses, but I, I looked at the list on the website, and uh, I'm going to go to my uh, my drugstore in the Martian Room and get mine checked today. I think that's a good message for everybody, especially guys who are hitting over 50 like me. Maybe not so you, but definitely me. Oh, definitely me. <laughs> Without question. Yeah, one of the pharmacies that's doing it is inside one of the grocery stores I shop at. So when I go get the mix-ins for tonight's chili, I'm going to get it done, I think. Yeah, no, I'm going to go out of my way to get that done as well. They call it the silent killer for a reason. I feel good, I feel healthy, but, uh, well, you got to keep an eye on it, that's for sure. Fair enough. Uh, Patty, I'm calling about crab, um, the price of snow crab to the inshore fleet. I know you know this, you pointed out at the beginning of the show, but the, the price of snow crab dropped on Monday to six fifteen a pound. So the price went from seven sixty to six fifteen, a drop of $1.45 a pound. That's a huge drop. Now, the problem that the intra fleet has with that price drop is, is that so many boats, especially smaller boats, they didn't have the opportunity to land their crab quota at 760 a pound. They didn't have the opportunity because of trip limits, which I know you know about, a cap on how much they could bring in at any one trip, but also because of fishing schedules, being told when to fish, being told um, when to go out, the whole nine yards. Some boats were tied up for days. Um, they had an opportunity to land their quota at 760 a pound, but they couldn't. So the entire fleet um, lost out on millions of dollars, and that's the long and the short of it. The question that must be asked, Patty, is this. Were trip limits and fishing schedules used to slow down the crab fishery until the price dropped? And the answer to that question, Patty, is they could have been which is one of the problems. Trip limits are allowed in the master collective agreement between the FFAW and ASP, and that language in that contract in the collective agreement also seems to allow for fishing schedules, so allowing processors, buyers, to tell boats when to go to sea, when not to go to sea. And, of course, that opens a Pandora's box in terms of all kinds of safety issues, pressure to fish when the weather may not be the best or lose the price or lose your chance to land your quota, pressure to fish or, or come across soft shell, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, soft shell can, cut, can shut down a fishery. And more trips to sea obviously equals more expenses for the inshore fleet, higher costs, increased risk all allowed under the FFAW contract. And while our fleet is tied up with trip limits and fishing schedules, snow crab from the Maritimes and Quebec, from boats from those provinces, um, and Derek Butler with the ASP has said that uh, those boats from the other provinces, crab landed from the Maritimes, it's deserving of a better price. That's a whole other issue. But, But that outside crab is being landed here for processing and backing up our inshore fleet's even further. So just to wrap up, our inshore fleet lost out on the higher price of seven sixty a pound, not because the crab wasn't there to catch patty, not because the boats weren't able to catch the, their quotas, but because processors, buyers have all of the power. And that power imbalance, and that's exactly what exists in the fishery today, that must be corrected. The power balance is all swung over to processors, to buyers, and the inshore fleet is 
is under the thumb of processors. They're told when to fish, when not to fish, how much to bring in, and then they lose out on the 760. Again, that's the difference between the 760, the 615, $1.45. Millions of dollars has been lost to our inshore fleet because of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much the association would know about what the market will be able to bear in two weeks from today or two weeks from whenever this decision was first entertained. I know that it came into effect four o'clock yesterday, but I don't know the motivation or the rationale behind any of these things. But quite clearly, this is a case study in support of a new crab processing license in St. Mary's because at least I don't know how many million pounds or how many hundreds of thousands of pounds would, could have been landed at the exact same time when there are the trip limits were in place, which is a, a, a nice argument if you want to be in support of one faction of the fishery or another, because you're right, 760 is a long way from 615, and if I had the capacity and the, and the crew and the time and the want to go out and get more of my quota before this price drop, I'm certainly way, way better off financially, add into the reality of more trips, more costs, less profit at the end of the season, so yep, there's this is a big one, which is why I brought it up off the top. Uh, absolutely, Patty. There is definitely 100% a need for more competition. And, and again, for the information of your listeners, fish price negotiations, uh, negotiating fish in eastern Canada, in Canada, is exempt from the Federal Competition Act. The whole pricing system, everything that's happening here is anti-competitive. It does not work for the inshore fleet in terms of landing the best possible price for their fish. Again, all the power is in the hand of the processors, and um, and the intra fleet is expected to take it. But that's not going to. Uh, I can't see that continuing, Patty. Not when the, when these kind of losses are, are are adding up, and everybody knows the prices of fuel of of all fishing expenses are gone through the roof, just like everything else. So everything, so the price of everything increases except the price of fish. Now there's got to be ways where we can certainly protect the processing sector to whatever extent and uh, because if for instance the fishery is the only industry that i can think of where we get so little for the raw material it's just really remarkable but there is a place for the processing sector of course there is for every reason imaginable if you flung the doors wide open and there was representatives of 13, 15 countries there to buy the product and that competitive nature would be great for the harvester, maybe not so great for other segments of the industry. So there's got to be a balance that's much better than this because there does seem to be a pendulum not sitting down in the middle. It's certainly on one side at this moment, as far as I can tell. So point understood. Uh, anything else? Quick, Ryan, before I take a break for the news. No, well, Patty, uh, just the one last thing I'd like to mention is the big reset. The Premier's Economic Recovery uh, Team report came out and said that uh, there needs to be... Uh, there needs to be more competition. There needs to be a possibly an auction system. If you open the door to an auction system whereby buyers from Newfoundland and Labrador or from anywhere could, could bid could bid for the fish that's landed, that would absolutely result in the intro fleet getting the best possible price for the fish. Oh, yeah. There is, there, there is, it's too anti-competitive. The pendulum, as you said, needs to change. Thank you for your time, Patty. Appreciate yours. Thanks, Ryan. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, break time for the newscast. When we come back, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Isabel, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. This is my first time calling in. Welcome to the show. Uh, and I was listening 
I partly heard what the man had to say talking about drug addiction, and I really appreciate what he's saying, because the biggest pandemic in Newfoundland right now is drug addiction, and the drug dealers are walking away smiling. Well, it is certainly a, a crisis in the country, I would suggest, especially when we talk about opioids. You know, yeah. there's most starting numbers come out of the province of British Columbia, but we can't kid ourselves. It is a massive concern here. And, mm-hmm. you know, unless it impacts you or your family, people don't really give it much thought, but it has widespread yeah. impact right across the community. Absolutely. And, uh, like, I moved from Ontario and I retired back home in Newfoundland, and I was astonished. Uh, now, you see drug addiction, of course, in Ontario and all those places, but it's not so uh, open. Like, it's not so available. Like, it's more of a hidden away than in Newfoundland. And uh, I do have um, an interest in it. My, my heart is broken for some people. And to hear people look at them and say they're the scum of the earth and something like that, it just breaks my heart because... They don't know. When when a child calls you up and says, Mom, I'm hungry. Can I have food? And she's not even in the country. Uh, what do you do? You send food. You don't send money. But you can't. And, and it also breaks my heart when people say, well, you know, uh, the love thing. Do the love thing. Kick them out. Disown them. I would never disown a, a person like that. It's a crime and a shame. And people need to open their eyes in Newfoundland. It's right under our nose and it's pitiful. You mentioned Ontario. I read a news story this morning before the show. Uh, Thunder Bay alone in 2021, 118 people died from opioid-related overdose in just Thunder Bay. So it's a big issue, of course. You know, what I always can't really wrap my mind around is when we talk about harm reduction policies is that some people hear it as if we're enabling folks like with a safe injection site or what have you it's to make the community safer it's not you know no one's going to say well okay now there's a safe injection site opening up in pleasantville i'm going to get on the heroin people don't think like that so harm reduction is actually really important government policy and we should give it more thought Absolutely. I agree 100% because personally, I not me personally, but I have watched and helped uh, in Ontario people who are like it. And uh, I'm a Christian woman, and I believe everybody needs to turn their heads towards what's actually going on and focus on our young people because I know there are teenagers in school who are starting it already, and um, it's the thing to do. And it's pitiful. It's sad. And I, I go to sleep every night praying that God will show people how dangerous and sad this is for our province. Yeah, not to ask an overly personal question, but uh, is someone in your family uh, kind of maybe reading between the lines? Sir, do you have a family member who's struggling? Absolutely. Is that right? Really difficult. Yeah, and. Um, um, well, this person is doing well now, but like it's, um, I, uh, yeah, you need what safety places for them. You need places where they're understood because by kicking them about and all that stuff, and you get all these people saying, well, they get paid for the, they don't have to pay for their Suboxone or their Methadone. They, that's all lies. It's $200 a month to get your Suboxone or your Methadone. I mean, you know, people are just down on the wrong things. 
far too often people view those who are addicted as just being the the ne'er do wells, the the, the gangsters, mm-hmm. those who are toiling in the shadows of the alley. When mm-hmm. it's a more, much more widespread issue than that, of course it is. Yes, yes, all people addicted in all walks of life. There absolutely are, Isabel. So, I mean, it, it's one of those issues where. It becomes uh, difficult to talk about. Some people mm-hmm. just don't want to pay much attention to it, don't want to spend any money on it. But even if we boil it down to the money, which I generally don't like doing, but some people, that's how they make their decisions about what they support and they don't, is money. Yeah. I guarantee you that the fewer people addicted to opioids or otherwise, if we mm-hmm. lower that number, we will save ourselves money, no matter how you slice it. Oh. Every time you look at it, you hear from people at the courtrooms, the numbers yeah. of people coming through addicted to drugs has a real impact on the cost of criminal justice. You look at what it means for interaction with healthcare. So the fewer people abusing, the less money it costs us. So even if we're not talking about morality or societal ills, if people want to talk about money, harm reduction policies save us all money. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, like I, I, uh, I don't know who that man was called in, but it's certainly uh, appreciating that. His name is Harold Williams, uh, and I think, uh, admittedly, himself and his brother Mike, who we've spoken to recently as well, they mm-hmm. uh, they would have had problems with certain uh, addictions uh, in the past, mm-hmm. and they've come out the other mm-hmm. side, and they're trying to help those who are currently struggling. So, good on them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I myself, like, um, I'm not boasting in any way, but if I, I've often talked to people on the street and looked them in the eye and, and you know, how are you? And, you know, they're all human beings, but um, I, I wish I had more of a volunteer, uh, but I'm getting older now, so <laughs> it's a bit beyond me. But anyway, I'd like to thank those guys, and uh, I appreciate them speaking about it and thank you so very much for listening to me patty happy to have you on isabel thanks for the time okay bye take care bye-bye you know i i I get it it's there's just so many emotional issues out there of course there are but quite clearly if we reduce the numbers of people who are addicted and that's whether it be awareness campaigns or harm reduction policies however you want to take the angle at it it saves us money, it makes us safer, it just has nothing but upside. Uh, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Helen, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hiya. How are you doing? Grand, how are you doing? I'm doing absolutely lovely. Terrific. <laughs> Listen, I got some uh, flooring there, laminate flooring, and I was trying to give it away. Okay. But I don't know who to get a hold to to give it away. <laughs> where, where are you? Are you in town? In center of town, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we don't like to give out people's address uh, necessarily. So you got laminate flooring that you hauled up. It's in good condition and can go down on someone else's floor. Yes. Okay. So how about this? If anybody is interested in and around the center of town and wants to pick up the laminate flooring, if they give us a call, we'll connect you both on the telephone. How's that? That'd be great. Okay, good enough. How much of it do you have? Uh, How much is there? Feet? How much? Between two and three hundred feet. The square feet, okay. So enough for uh, a decent uh, size room. Okay. Oh, we can do a fair size front room, and there are probably a couple of hundred feet. Couple of hundred feet. He said, "It might, yeah, half said, yeah." There you go. So, uh, <laughs> if anybody would like that laminate flooring, call Dave Williams. It will connect you with Helen, and away we go. No, okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Have a good day. You too. 
Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, how are we doing out there on the telephone, David? Let's go ahead and take a break for these advertisements. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Just very quickly before we get to the caller. So uh, an interesting email, and the person was concerned that far too often for his liking anyway, is that there's comparisons between this province and other provinces on a variety of different things, whether it be cost of living, price of fuel, the prevalence of hypertension, what have you. (laughs) And I think the suggestion is that it's an effort for me to deflect. I don't know why that would be. I live here. So the cost of living here impacts me as much as it impacts everyone else living here. So sometimes... It's just a bit of context for conversations as opposed to, oh, well, my God, look how bad it is elsewhere. That's that's not the point, period. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting view held. Line number one, Juanita, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Hi there. Uh, I was listening to your show this morning, and there was a topic on it that has always been something I love to discuss is abortion. Uh, when I was in high school, we used to do the Millennium Club Speak Off, and I always asked for this topic, and they always said it's too controversial, so we never talked about it. I know there's pros and cons on it. Uh, I'm a person I don't agree with abortion unless there are certain circumstances. I know it's hard to say you either you do or you don't, but the people got to realize that you can't judge somebody if they choose to have an abortion. It's their choice. I don't agree with it, but I certainly wouldn't put anybody down who did. I would try to stand by them and give them the support they need. Uh, uh, and fair enough. The Some of the opposition is straight up based in people's religious beliefs, and so be it. But what's an important distinction, I think, is that if your religion tells you that you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, then consider not doing it. But for someone else who may not share the same faith, um, what your religion says really means nothing to that person. So, you know, there's individual circumstances. And also what gets caught up in this or lost in the conversation is people who might be extremely religious and very pious people and on the right side of the political spectrum. To pretend that nobody in that realm has ever had an abortion or terminated a pregnancy is also a bit silly, right? Because we know it's not true. So it's a really tricky conversation to have. And I've been told many times as a man, I should stay out of it. But unfortunately, if someone calls wants to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it because it's a societal conversation. I know the decisions ultimately will be made by the person carrying the child, but I would think inside a relationship there would be plenty of conversation about the ups, the downs, the pros, the cons, the worries. Uh, So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, maybe this is spurred on simply because of what's happening in the United States. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile discussing codifying it into law. The R versus Morgenthaler ruling in 1988 is which is how we base our approach to abortion in this country. It's worthwhile extension of that conversation, I think. Most definitely, most definitely. I have a family member who doesn't want any children, and I've told her more than once, like, don't ever get into a relationship where you're pressured to have a child if you don't want one. And with my daughter, she always said, well, Mom, if I ever got pregnant, you know, like, I would have an abortion. And like I told her, if that's your choice, I will stand beside you 110. percent It's not that I don't. Uh, it's not that I say that I agree with it. Because, like I said, I don't. I am a Christian. I mean, I do go to church and I have my beliefs. But 
Uh, like I always said, you don't put somebody down for their beliefs. You try to stand beside them. And that's, that's basically, basically all I wanted to say this morning. Well, I'm glad you made time for the program. Just a quick question, because every now and then I might say something quite clumsy, and live radio is, is difficult sometimes. I made reference this morning when talking about the potential for the, uh, the Basilica of St. John the Baptist to be sold, that congregations might look a bit older than they did decades ago. How does it look in your church? Just out of curiosity. Our church is an aging congregation. Uh, I'm 52 years old, and I'm probably the youngest one there. Amazing. Yeah. Is, uh, do you mind me asking of what faith? Oh, United. You're, just, you're Catholic? No, United. United, United church. church. Okay. Yeah. So, and even just the conversation about the uh, archdiocese having to sell off the assets has really been a matter of consternation for so many of our listeners who don't necessarily want to talk about it on the air, and I understand mm -hmm. why. But they are quite concerned inside their own parish, you know. Just imagine, some communities have lost their priests, have lost their church, and now if there are fewer and fewer places for Catholics, in this case, to worship, then that's a really extraordinarily unfortunate outcome because through no fault of their own, these things have happened. That's true, true mm -hmm. enough. We, should, we shouldn't punish them for something that other people have done. Absolutely. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Juanita. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, I do think it's a realistic question to ask how it's not the Vatican on the hook. You know, there's a story came out, I believe it was Philadelphia, not long ago, where this particular parish was being sued in similar fashion to what we've seen here, the victims of Mount Cashel. And they very quickly shipped out $50 million to the Vatican, a different layer of protection. I mean, just talk about how nefarious an act that is. And the Vatican has tons of money. And so we know someone had to be held to account, rightfully so. And the compensation is absolutely deserved. But the Vatican, whether it be assets of cash on hand, liquid in the bank, the Vatican Bank, extraordinary. They are the second largest landholder in the world outside of governments. And that's a collective, governments. There was a curious way to put it. Uh, they looked at the value of the real estate holdings, land included, and they looked at the province of Saskatchewan and vacant farmland. And if they said it added up to the value was in and around $900 or $9,000 per acre, just adding up the Vatican's owned property, it totaled somewhere in the neighborhood of just shy of $100 billion dollars. Just in land, based at the most ridiculously no number you can possibly assign to it, empty farmland. When we know that in many of the world's major cities, the Roman Catholic Church holdings are in some of the most precious, prominent, expensive locations in those cities. Just go through, you know, just name a world, one of the world's big cities and just think about where some of their big basilicas are. New York, London. Rome, up and down the line, it is absolutely the most prominent parts of these cities, Barcelona, Madrid, wherever you like to throw it, that have Roman Catholic assets, holdings, real estate speaking, right there. So I think it's a fair, uh, a fair question being asked. Just imagine being uh, a parishioner of one parish or another, and your family has been going to that particular church for decades and generations. You did nothing wrong. You helped build the church. And all of a sudden, that church is at risk because of the evil behavior of others at an orphanage. Just an unbelievable story. Uh, let's go to line number two. Fred, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Fred. 
Yes, I'd like to uh, just put a message out that I lost a Beltone earring aid in Cornerbrook, up around Walmart area. And my phone number is 785-2764, and reward is offered. Fair enough. Fred, do you take out your uh, hearing aid when you go into some loud places like the shops or something? No, no. The new hearing aids are, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite capable of uh, looking out to that. They automatically decrease volumes and whatever. Okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So you lost your hearing aid. When was this, Fred? That was probably two weeks ago. Two weeks ago now, and we know that they're expensive to replace. So if you picked up a Belltone hearing aid at what part of Cornerbrook? Pardon me? Uh, Walmart area. Out in the Walmart, Walmart parking lot. Okay. Walmart and uh, Bulkburn. Fair enough. If someone picked it up, I've got a number for you to call, and you can indeed get a reward. Give Fred a shout at 785-2764. That's correct. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Fred. Good luck to you. Okay, man. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Hearing aids. So if you found that particular item, Fred would be more than pleased if you gave him a shout so that we can get it back in his hands and, well, I guess, in his ear. All right, let's check in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And there's certainly so many issues that we can broach, and we can do exactly that uh, after the newscast. Someone did send along a note asking me uh, what was that I was saying about the federal government paying out bonuses to executives and some 2.7 members. Uh, percent of the public sector just below the executive class 171 million dollars plus the big concern there is i don't begrudge people getting paid but when the department uh, targets were not achieved only some 48 percent and that was across the board the average that so says the the government's own database so achieved half of their targets and got performance and at-risk pay bonuses Hard to understand exactly how and why that could be justified. So that was that story. You want to pick up on that or anything else? Do it after the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. I was just chatting with one of the lads out in the hallway there during the newscast. And he asked me, are you getting any calls about the Royals? And curiously... Zero. I don't think we've had one person call about the Royals, whether it be that they're excited to catch a glimpse today or they think it's completely irrelevant or it's a waste of money or whatever the case may be. So I I do find that to be fascinating. But it's one of the interesting things sitting in this chair is you just never know. What will provoke someone to want to call? What's a matter of concern for you? Because that's how the show operates, right? Whatever you're interested in or concerned about is how we tackle it. Uh, This one for Fred. Out in Corner Brook, who lost his hearing aid in the Walmart bulk barn area, parking lot or maybe in the shops. There is a Facebook group. It's called NL Lost and Found. I forget about this all the time. NL Lost and Found. Someone may indeed have picked it up because Facebook is a pretty popular social media platform in this province. So just maybe give that a shot too, Fred, because you might find your Belltone hearing aid on that particular webpage or Facebook group, NL Lost and Found. Okay, and just speaking of the Royals, 
again, some people will indeed be wanting to catch a glimpse today. Best place to do it is at Government House. And there is no on-site parking. Uh, you can indeed have an accessible drop-off point at Military Road, that entrance. And you got to be there by 2 o'clock. You can indeed bring a portable uh, fold, folding chair. So if you're so inclined, like I won't be doing it necessarily because I don't really have that level of interest. But I do think the conversation about the relevance and the future of the monarchy is one that's happening. No question, things will change when uh, Prince Charles ascends to the throne. There's no doubt about it. And look, <laughs> I said no one's called on the royals. <laughs> Let's go line number two. Good morning, Liam. You're on the air. How are you, Mr. Daly? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm not too bad. I'm just uh, just turning off now on the arterial drive, uh, headed my way to Government House. Okay, so uh, you're interested? Oh, most definitely. I'm uh, I'm actually a tour guide at uh, at Government House, and as uh, and I actually flew home uh, early for this event. I wasn't uh, I wasn't supposed to come home uh, until the end of the month because, of course, I I've been up away doing. Uh, theater and whatnot as we've spoke about uh before and uh and so when i had the email um with the invite to uh to attend at government house uh i said right away i called down i said what's the chances i can change my ticket mother and uh so anyways able to change the ticket and i flew home uh, early yesterday uh for today what intrigues you about the royals because you're a young man and i would think and again i'm just guessing that most monarchists uh would be probably of a, an older vintage so what intrigues you about the royals this day and age well i mean i've always had i'm an old soul and uh, i've always had interest and especially you know our province's uh history uh with the royal family and uh, and i think it's a big one um, and it is a it is an interesting family, and I mean what they do uh, on the global uh, scale. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's just fantastic. Um, you know, whether it's uh, public relations, whether it's um, you know building uh, relations between nations. I mean, this family has had a long history and has dealt with many many issues uh, on the global scale with you know whether that be um, politics I know that they try to stay out of it uh, government uh, issues uh, but they do have uh, a lot of uh, knowledge to offer and they're no they're no no dummies when it when it comes to uh, policy and uh, and affairs and what have you uh, you mentioned uh, about uh, the rev uh, the revelance that you know the uh, the royal family would have, and when Charles ascends the throne, and it is a big it is a big topic. You know what what does that mean for you know um, Canada uh, having a head of state? Because we we've seen um, uh, other Commonwealth um, uh, nations uh, uh, leave, and just recently um, as well. Uh, but you know Charles he does have a you know um, a plan for. Or, or what's been kind of said about slimming out the monarchy a little bit, which I think for some people is a is a more favorable view, having less working royals. Um, 
you know, one one of the upsides that I uh, that I have with uh, Charles because there are lots of you know controversy with any with any royal, um, but his his efforts on um, the environment and global warming is just fantastic, and and the. Um, the the awareness that he's bringing about it, I do believe he even uh, designed and made a car that like runs off of old like cheese and wine that is not you know gas related. And uh, I, I do I, no, honestly, I swear yes, I'm 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 almost I'd almost bet money. I, I would bet money on that. I'm I'm pretty sure I read that. Uh, but um, but but yeah. So anyways, I'm gonna that's. Uh, I'm going to say period on that and uh, on that train of thought. No problem. Now, of course, it goes without saying that the royal family has also been plagued with a variety of scandals over the years. What I do find probably, if there's anything that I can say that I think is fascinating about the royals, is that, I mean, there's nothing to sneeze at the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, a platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne, is really quite extraordinary. And she's been able to weather some pretty significant storms. And it didn't really stick to her. You would think that the head of state, whoever's at the helm of the family, the matriarch in this case, that the scandals would really plague them and stick to them and be part of their legacy. But I'm not really sure that's the case with Queen Elizabeth II. Then you compare or contrast royal trips, royal tours, back in the early half of her reign compared to royal tours now. I mean, she had enormously, hugely successful tours. She really did. Of course, so did Diana. But now, it's not the case. I don't know what kind of reception they're going to get here today. I really have no idea. But if you look at William and Kate's tour of the Caribbean, it was a complete disaster. They were virtually run out of town. You know, before they had a chance to sit down for their formal conversation with the Jamaican president, he announced pretty much that they're doing what the Bahamas and Barbados have done. They're cutting ties. Not for the monarchy. People on the street were extremely unwelcoming of William and Kate. So we'll see what happens today. We certainly will. I uh, Hopefully there will be a, a good turnout and whatever. I think, you know, uh, Canada's, you know, relationship uh, with, with the royals uh, are slightly different from uh, those that you, that you just mentioned. And, I mean, e- each country has to look at what, what, is, what is best for them, um, you know. And, um, and, and, and if that was the right move for them, well, then that was the, you know, right move for them. Because, you know, nations, nations do need to diversify and they need to grow, uh, you know, just like you see uh, the Dutch royal family, for instance, with... Um, Oh my God, Queen! Um, I think it's Beatrice. I think it's her That's name. Right. I could be wrong. Yes, um, and they treat abdication uh, almost as a um, as a celebration, whereas the um, uh, you know the British monarchy shows it as a quite a, a bad thing, as we've seen with you know uh, King uh, Edward, uh, you know David, the, the Nazi king, as some as some would call him, a treacherous king, you know, and they. Uh, Queen Beatrice abdicated, I believe her mother and her grandmother abdicated, to um, let new breath um, be uh, uh, to have in the monarchy, let her son uh, take over. And they, and they almost treat it like, um, 
like a profession whether instead of you know um, a birthright or you know what have you and I think that's a really interesting thing to look at because um, they're also uh, comparably uh, have more money and more you know a little bit uh, I wouldn't say status but definitely more money than um, Her Majesty uh, the Queen and so that's a really interesting um, comparison to make between those two queens and both scandals, uh, well, um, the scandals in, in general uh, that go around them and how they both, you know, weathered them. Because you're right, they it, they've certainly weathered a lot of lot of storms. Um, but that's that's a testament to, I think, to their. Um, I wouldn't say about popu- well popularity, but that's not the right word that I'm looking for. But their but their strength and determination and uh, and um, I guess uh, care for their their uh, their subjects. And you know they are in this way public servants. They 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 take an oath to you know to defend to defend the faith and to defend our countries. And I think you know. They, they they do do a good job at, uh, at at supporting at supporting their their subjects, uh, whether that be at home or on the global scale. Uh, fair enough, Liam, and I hope you enjoy your afternoon at Government House and appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Mr. Daly, and uh, we'll be chatting to you again soon. I'm sure. Anytime. All the best. Already. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. And yes, I mean, there's plenty going on now. So there was some scandalous stuff surrounding uh, Fergie and then, of course, now Prince Andrew, and that's very, very real. Even the circumstances surrounding Diana's death. So there's a lot. And you mentioned uh, abdication. It's not that long ago that King Edward VIII abdicated the throne. That was all with his want to marry Wallace Simpson, right? So I remember how that all went down. I think he was the king for... It was less than a year. I think it was like 325 days. Edward VIII sat on the throne as the King of England and pretty much ostracized by most of the royal family when he did indeed abdicate the throne. Okay, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. And, Hi. You know, I'm, I'm a senior person, senior citizen, and I live in Anabodja, and I find, like, with companies trying to deal with companies, you've got to have a credit card in order to book anything and and it drives me crazy because i got a limited one and uh, i can't book anything because i haven't got enough credit on it yeah uh, certainly a lot of companies require a credit card number to initiate doing business with them there are some opportunities to avoid that but it's tricky but you're right credit cards are a go-to which is why some people get quite cross when we talk about options that are available for folks, even during pandemic restrictions, what have you. Not always as easy as that if you don't have a credit card. Yes, and, and, and it, it's horrible because it makes me sort of dependent on my children too much, you know, Cause I, because I can't book anything, i got to depend on my child to do, do any business I need to do. And it, it drives me crazy. You know, one time you could write a check or, you know, but now you can't even do that anymore. They want credit care. Everything is plastic. You gotta have plastic, you know. And uh, I just—it just frustrates me to death as a senior because a lot of people can't afford it to have credit cards. You know, they only got a small limit on their credit card, so they can't book anything. And it, it drives me right up the wall. You know, it's what way. What way do you get around it? And and because I haven't got a computer, I can't do nothing that way either by paying the credit card. Like if I go to the bank to pay the credit card, I can't pay it. 
Why do you have such a low uh, limit on your credit card by choice? By choice, because I I know I can, I only got a limit of money. Yep. And I don't want to go over that limit. Fair enough. Uh, not a very common theme, I don't imagine, because credit card debt is huge in this country. Absolutely mind-boggling how big our debts are. Yeah, and I I don't know if any other person people are having trouble like I am, with you know having a limited credit card. You know, the priority is petty. You know, when you're on a fixed income, it's only if someone got a hold to your card and spent your limit. What do you do for groceries or anything then? You know, the priority is like it, it really frustrates me that banks are pushing for you to have a credit card. Well, it's good for them. I mean, the uh, if you're a someone with good credit, uh, an average interest on a credit card about eighteen, nineteen percent, something yeah. like that. Now, some people, some of the big muckety mucks with the American Express Platinum, might have a better arrangement, even though their service fees are out of control. But yeah, here's just another little interesting tidbit on credit cards. Yeah. Because managing it is really different. It feels one thing to reach into your pocket and pull out the cash to pay for something. Quite a different feeling when you simply put your credit card on the table. It's just like playing poker. It's different to call a $100 bet with a $100 bill versus a $100 chip. It's all just a mindset thing. For a minimum balance, folks think, you know, well, I I can manage my credit card because I should be able to make minimum balance payments. Okay. If you have a $1,000 balance on your credit card and only make the minimum payments at 19%, it takes 62 months takes over five years to pay off your $1,000, and that's only if you don't even make a single additional charge on that credit card. It is unbelievable how rich the companies get on, and the banks get on credit cards. And, and like I said, if I use up that $1,000 right away, then I, can, I can't go, uh, do business anywhere else. Until you pay it off, yep. Until I pay the whole $1,000 off. And, and it is so frustrating that banks are able to push credit cards on you so easy and they can send a card to you and you're not even asking for a card because that happened to me it's my uh mailbox i get one i remember the household gets one frequently i was going to say weekly but i'm not really sure yeah and um you know i don't know if anyone else is having the problems i'm having like i said i haven't got a computer so i'm i'm screwed that way and now, because I can't, I, I use cash all the time. I go for groceries. I know what I can afford, and I won't spend above that, you know. And I use cash for that purposes, you know. Like I'm on a budget, so I'm, I stick to my budget because I don't want old people money. I, I never did, and never will, you know. And uh, I don't know um, if there's other people like me that are so conscious over money. Oh, I'm sure there are. Uh, worry wo- money woes are pretty common this day and age. Roz, I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. And thank you, Petty, for uh, taking my, my call. Anytime. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Uh, the household debt numbers are out of control. Well, it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, for every dollar we bring in, we spend a dollar seventy-five servicing our own household debts. And everybody has different levels of debt. And of course, some of the big numbers associated with mortgages, but lines of credit, outstanding loans, vehicle payments, credit card debt—I think I might have said that already. It's a whopping big number. It really, truly is. Just think about how many folks who look like they're doing really well. But then they look around and they see what the inflation has meant to adjustments to the Bank of Canada's benchmark rate. We may see five, six interventions this calendar year. 
there's a, I would imagine a fair number of people out there that uh, 1% hike, because now we're going up a quarter percent, half percent, those are the kind of incremental increases we can anticipate. But if it's up a point in a calendar year, that makes a big difference on folks who carry heavy debt load. That's not to pretend I don't have any debts, because of course I do. I'm like everybody else out there. You know, it's hard to avoid, and the money has been fairly inexpensive, if not, quote-unquote, free. So, yeah, the whole debt uh, issue is madness. But <laughs> one more time, someone said that can't be true about a uh, $1,000 ba- balance on your credit card. At, I think the number was 19% used for that this particular piece of mathematics. A $1,000 balance with a 19% interest charge, it takes 62 months to pay it off. 62 months to pay back 1000 bucks. <laughs> and then they look at the some of the other type of lending institutions. Uh, what do they call those? The emergency jobs? Anyway, it eludes me. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.